Hi, and welcome to Articulations, the podcast where we feature innovative and unique musicians we love. I'm Ben McAllister. I'm Joshua Cole. And today we're going to be talking to Dennis Ray, who is an anchor of the Seattle music scene, has been active here since the early 80s, and someone whose work has threaded through every single facet uh, of the of the local uh, of the local music community. He was uh, he's part of the tentacle for a long time which was kind of a hub for events and conversation about experimental music in seattle and uh and he was actually part of uh of this my my first experience with him was uh watching this film shredder orpheus that had wow. like a who's who of all these seattle folks kind of before anybody like got real famous in their own right like amy denio's in there steven jesse bernstein's in there um i'm spacing on a couple other folks that are in there dennis plays these really like psychedelic sci-fi looking i guess they're real guitars i was wondering if they were prop pieces or guitars wow um yeah <laughs> i didn't really even know cool such movie. a film i didn't know that existed it's That's totally really totally worth um uh, uh, a spin on youtube wow. it's yeah the um I went back. I didn't watch the whole thing, but I watched the like Stephen Jesse Bernstein is like this kind of Lord of the Junkyard character in this post-apocalyptic. Oh wait a minute! This is a movie, not a a movie. Oh, this isn't a this isn't a documentary. Uh uh No, it's a it's like fiction, and it's like everybody lives in this like skater. Uh, Um. I don't know, like it seems a little road warrior influence. So they're like in this little like dystopian skater community wow. where everybody's like living off of what they can forage and stuff and everybody skates where to and fro and stuff. So it feels super it's, couched it, in the 80s. It's kind of hard for me to picture road warrior in Seattle. <laughs> just just landscape wise. It's like it's all in the industrial. You'd area. hit a tree with those. Right. <laughs> With those big trucks. <laughs> right now, these guys think Orpheus was cool because he played on the PTR show and skated the euthanasia garage. But maybe someday they will understand why he did it. It reminds me of the time before the war. She was really beautiful. Dennis is uh, about to embark on a super exciting tour of Russia, and I think Tuva. technically Tuva is in, I'm looking at his Facebook post now, so he says Russian tour, but then he posted this amazing uh, poster in, uh, he says, in Tuva. Yeah. Okay. And, so, and uh, we're going to get to a lot more on Tuva when, when Dennis joins us in the past after yeah. this <laughs> and, then, and then we're gonna follow i know at the end we say we're gonna follow up and so we're, so very soon in season two we'll have a little revisit with dennis and hear how his tour went oh yeah that's... but um let me just uh run through you're gonna want to go to dennis's facebook page which we'll link to in the show notes on uh, articulationspodcast.com but uh he is uh touring with his band Terrain, which is a variation on his band Moraine, with Dick Valentine, Daniel Anthony Zongrone, I hope I'm not mispronouncing these names, and Vadim Dickey. 
with uh, some special guests here and there um, that you'll see more detail on. Um, he starts out in um, Tomsk on September 6th and 7th, and then moves on to Kemerovo, and then um, Kizil in Tuva. So that's the one on September 11th on 9-11. Um, Abakan, Krasnoyarsk, Dubna, and then ultimately in Moscow on uh, September 15th. So and if anyone out there, and by any chance, <laughs> is going to be there, we would love to hear more from you. We'd love to talk to you about um, the show and uh, maybe feature your reaction here on an, uh, on the episode with Dennis. Um, recordings yeah. especially, we'd love, to, we'd, we'd love to hear. And Dennis has such a, as you'll hear in the episode, Dennis has such an amazing history in in that part of the world in Russia and Tuva and China and um, just, you know, such an amazing adventure that so much of it seems like it, it um, somewhat accidental. Um, and um, he's just, he, I, I can, I can imagine how things could um, flourish so uh, easily on an accident with Dennis because he's such a, a warm and, and modest and, you know, incredibly, talented musician and just a wonderful person to be around. And I, it's just really cool to see how his energy um, was able to just flow through all of these amazing adventures yeah. that he's had, you know. He is, he is one of these folks, too, who's just like, you know, somewhere around 10 years older than us who, who is still at it. And I mean, I... Not just still. Age, I, mean, I mean, it doesn't seem like there's been any you know, fluctuation. In he the output, is not you know? flagged at all. I was, I was just saying like, I so appreciate somebody yeah. to look up to who is still like forging their own path mm -hmm. and, and keeping that momentum up. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody I told, um, uh, just in my circle of friends and stuff who I, who are curious about what's coming up on the podcast. If, uh, if I mentioned Dennis and his upcoming tour of Russia and China, everybody like rolls their eyes back and goes like, like assumes he's in his twenties and like, Oh, kids these days. Oh my God. <laughs> You'd have to be crazy to go to China right now. Blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, it's, it's super inspiring. Yes, so anyway, yes. um, that's Dennis Ray. You're going to hear from him in a minute, but, um, do you want to yeah, set yeah. this up? So, so normally we share something we've been working on, but, um, l last night, um, my wife Crow and I were were um, watching a music video that um, Ben's band that that I played guitar in Tuck to made um, a couple years ago. Now it's more than a couple. Yeah, a number of years <laughs> yeah, ago, five, um, and we were just like, man, I missed that music, missed that yeah, band, yeah. and um, and and actually it was Crow's idea. Hey, put that on the podcast. So um, I thought let's let's play that i mean that's definitely a bit of context and this also something we have been working on in the past yeah for sure. yeah, yeah yeah and and it's also you know for me it's very much part of what i'm working on in the present just all the all the the guitar work that you put me through on that all right on, on that thanks stuff. so thanks okay well this is um uh this is sled song by tuck Two.
That that brings back all my um, struggle with memorizing that uh, accompaniment line. Yeah, it's one of those things that sounds simple, and it's just a bitch. <laughs> dun 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 So let's move into our our chat with Dennis Ray, who is on tour in uh, Russia. He is touring in support of his uh, forthcoming release from Moon June Records, a label he's been working with for some time, um, called Giant Steps, S-T-E-P-P-E-S. Pun intended. Pun intended. And uh, this is a track uh, from that forthcoming release called Georgian song.
All right, Dennis. Welcome. Ray, welcome. Hey, have, thanks for having me. On the way in, we played um, Georgian Song, and that's from a, a project you're working on. You sent three tracks our way uh, before we met, and I'm not sure if you've settled on the title yet, so maybe you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're up to, including that awesome piece. Uh, I haven't settled on the title of that particular piece. That's just a generic description placeholder for now, but it's an interpretation of some Georgian traditional music, uh, and not the state of Georgia, the uh, the nation, okay. the Caucasus. Okay. But uh, it's one of the pieces that I'm uh, recording toward uh, my next album project, which is going to be titled Giant Steps, and that's spelled S-T-E-P-P-E-S. So it invokes John Coltrane, but uh, it's kind of a pun for a project that is uh, about reimagining uh, traditional Central Asian music. Mm. Uh, by which I mean uh, a very wide area that is kind of culturally uh, disjointed but uh, geographically united. And so I've chosen to work with themes from Tuva, uh, the Altai region of Central Russia, uh, Central Asian Russia, that is, uh, Tibet, Georgia, which and it's kind of a stretch to classify Georgia as Central Asia, but I, I figured I could get away with it, mm -hmm. and Tibet. Mm -hmm. So uh, anticipate having that project finished uh, early next year and uh, released on the label that I record for, uh, Moon June Records. It's awesome. some really beautiful stuff. Well, yeah. I'm glad you think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is that an ensemble that you've been like a, a steady state of players? The the instrumentation and the singer is super too. varied, and the singing is insane. Yeah, I yeah love who are that all these piece. people? Yeah. Well, I uh, I'm approaching each piece as, uh, as as its own project in itself. Okay. And so I basically I'm looking at the source material. In, in all but one cases, I am working with source material material of my choice, traditional mm -hmm. source material, but injecting my personality into it. Do you mean, so. do you mean field recordings or you mean, uh, uh, things I have on records I've picked up okay. over the years Oh, cool! and, uh, basically things that really lodged in my head and I, that I, I couldn't shake. Mm -hmm. And, uh, in some cases, uh, you know, deeply influenced my own music and my, my approach to music making. And so, uh, I, kind of examine the material and uh, see what it suggests to me in terms of kind of radical rearrangements. Mm. So um, I, I make no pretense of being authentic or, or nor having any deep expertise in these traditions. So it's but, not an anthropological exercise, it's a, or a musicological <laughs> exercise. It's more of a uh, letting it mingle with your soul and pretty much dealing with music that, that speaks to me. Yeah. Um, but another aspect here, and this has kind of become not a conscious theme, but in, in retrospect I can see that it's developed as a theme over the course of my music career, is developing, uh, excuse me, the, the uniting my two fondest interests, which are music and geography, mm. and both cultural and physical geography. So I've had the... Uh, great privilege of traveling in Central Asia, and uh, the, the, the place really got into my blood. Uh, but 
far previous to that, I was introduced to Tuvan music by friends and, and this and that music. And uh, <clears throat> this could be seen as a sequel, Giant Steps uh, of Sorts, to a record that I finished over 10 years ago called uh, Views from Chichang Precipice. Mm -hmm. And that grew out of my, uh, my having lived in China and Taiwan for f four plus years. Uh, during that period, uh, I noticed that I was almost alone among the long-time expatriates in taking a genuine interest in Chinese traditional music. Hmm. Most of the other people avoided it like the plague, but uh, I haunted these little record shops and filled up boxes with cassettes, and I couldn't even really read the titles. I had to make my best guesses based on the, the, uh, the, the cover art. <laughs> I was looking for basically traditional solo yeah. instrumental music, ideally. And then uh, trying to uh, come to terms with it, in some cases trying to adapt it to my instrument, and uh, got the notion that someday eventually when I could marshal the, the right instrumental forces, uh, that I would uh, work up some, uh, some rather kind of fantastical uh, rearrangements of them. So back to the giant steps, this, uh, this is the logical next step in that progression uh, because uh, much more recently, as I mentioned, I'd had the experience of traveling and playing music in Central Asia, so um, it's timely. Hmm. But in each case, I, uh, I chose the instrumentation that I thought served the, the source material uh, best. Mm -hmm. In the piece that you just played, uh, I actually recorded several versions of it before I settled on the one that I that, that you you played, and uh, basically it's kind of a small chamber ensemble mm -hmm. with uh, reeds, drums, guitar, and uh, it's it's one of the least elaborate of the arrangements. Um, what, you, what are the what are the are there elements of that that are from the source? Yes, and what? so the source material in that case was uh, a record that was, uh, I believe, it was a Smithsonian Folkways record, I mm -hmm. believe, called Musics of the Soviet Union, and it dates back to probably the 70s, I believe, and uh, there was a couple of tracks on that collection that were just simply called Georgian Song, and Georgian <laughs> Song 2. So it was kind of difficult to reference them. But uh, they were a, a male vocal ensemble. And in doing a little bit of research, I discovered that um, the Georgian uh, choral music is arguably, uh, I, I think it's, it's very arguably the... Uh, so, some claim it was the earliest uh, incidence of vocal polyphony. Mm. Really? Yeah. Huh. So, so we're talking pre-1100, 1200 there anyway? I, like, I can't date it for you right now. Medieval? Yeah. But Interesting. I, huh. I, I would say probably roughly contemporaneous with other Christian yeah, yeah. polyphony. I'm going to go nerd out on that. <laughs> that sounds yeah. awesome. And... Uh, if, if you listen to one of these pieces in particular, it uh, well, I find that all of these pieces are rather haunting, and there's something there's something funny about the harmonies that really attracted me. And uh, in one case, it seemed like uh, 
I discovered when trying to play along with it and pick it apart, see what it was made of, that um, that the fundamental pitch was traveling mm. over the course of the song hmm. so that I could play with the music in tune for a certain stretch. And by the end of the song, I was out of tune with it. Hmm. And so at first I thought you could probably chalk that up to the fact that they were you know, just a rustic folk ensemble or something. But I later found that uh, they're a little more clever than that, that they were actually, that, that there's a method to that madness. Really? Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I've heard of, you know, different cultures having different sense, you know, different pitches, different tunings, all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But a, a migrating tonal center, that's something I've never really heard of. Yeah. Well, they might have been trying to cover their tracks after. <laughs> but Don't anyway, want to so that's that piece. And um, you mentioned uh, tracks with vocals, uh, the one piece. And this, this was an opportunity that just kind of dropped in my lap. Uh, I met a local fellow who is a member of a Russian folk ensemble. I met him at a progressive rock festival. And... Uh, yeah, we just got talking. He noticed that I was wearing a T-shirt that had Russian on it. so, And uh, we got talking, and uh, I said, what about you? Do you do music? And he said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, my wife and I have a uh, traditional Russian f- folk music vocal ensemble called Juliana and Pava. And, uh, and these guys, it's a... Female here, here five, in yeah, female five-piece vocal ensemble yeah, of Russian women, and then uh, Nikolai uh, accompanies them on mostly hurdy-gurdy, but uh, just some ethnic instruments that kind of uh, provide a ground tone. And uh, he said, hey, "If you ever want to collaborate, you know, the gals would be—I'm sure they'd be up for that because you know they're open-minded and." looking to collaborate and uh, broaden their horizons. They like fusion. And at that time, I couldn't really think of where that might fit into my plans. But then he laid a couple of their records on me. And I noticed that they identified the regions from which the pieces were drawn and that there were several from the Altai region in Central Asia, Hmm. which is... uh, The Altai Mountains are actually... They're the highest mountains in all of Siberia. Mm-hmm. They sit on the Mongolian border. In fact, they sit on the border with Mongolia, China, and Russia, and very close to Tuva. And so uh, there's actually two distinct strains of the Altai music because there are a Mongolic people that inhabit the uh, in, inner mountain fastnesses, and they practice a type of music which is very closely related to their neighboring Mongolian and Tuvan music. But this was the music of ethnic Russian people who settled in the area, um, more in the foothills area to the north of there. But uh, thinking about it, I thought, well, that's about as Central Asia as you get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, in fact, if some people claim there's a monument in the capital of Tuva, that uh, purports to mark the geographical center of Asia, but they're actually off by a couple hundred kilometers, mm. and uh, it's more properly located over there in the Altai region. Mm. The Altai region is, by the way, it's cloaked in mystery. Uh, it's a magnet for mystics, and oh. it's the place that uh, many believe 
is the uh, is the site of the uh, fabled uh, Shambhala, Shangri-La. Really? Yeah. Huh. I, I've noticed people tend to think because of the uh, the book and movie, they tend to think that it was located down in the Himalayas in mm-hmm. Nepal, but in fact, it's mm-hmm. a far north of there. Uh, so when I saw that they had pieces from the Altai region and a couple that really sent me, I thought, this is perfect. This just dropped into my lap. So oh. uh, I, I, once again, I taught myself their pieces. I, I kind of unpacked them and uh, decided how I wanted to approach this, how I would work the guitar into it. Uh, we went to the studio and I had them sing these tunes, but I also had each of the singers sing each of the tones that composed that scale, mm. uh, one note at a time. Mm-hmm. So I had each of the five singers um, sing each note of the scale one by one. So I had a palette of uh, individual notes to work oh, with. Okay. And uh, I also asked them to improvise a bit, and they were totally comfortable with that. They had some ideas of their own. Uh, so when I went to construct the piece, uh, I wanted the two pieces that I was uh, basing it on, I, I wanted them to stand uh, on their own legs uh, recognizably as, as the tunes that they were, but I wanted to kind of stitch these two pieces together into this kind of fantasia uh, and I basically created chords out of the individual mm-hmm. voices that I had collected in the studio. Mm-hmm. Harvested. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, then when the whole thing was put together, I did some electric guitar soloing over it and uh, matched up some acoustic guitar with with the tunes. And so that that's how that worked. We're going to have to play a little bit of that. Yeah, yeah. The um the pitches that you you found from them now, mm-hmm. did they lay in with regular equal tempered twelve note per octave, or did yeah. you have to? Okay, yeah. Well, that's convenient. Yeah. I so. thought we were gonna get to part two where you had to retune or microtonally adjust. Right. <laughs> What's interesting? I'm I'm told that they really like the result. I'm, I'm curious though because. Uh, um, it's certainly very uncharacteristic of what they normally do. And I created kind of cluster chords out of their voices that are more reminiscent of Ligeti or something like that, you know. I was hearing kind of Bulgarian. Yeah, yeah. same. Yeah, singing. I could hear that too. A lot of seconds. Yeah, yeah very closely voiced. You know, last, last night I was at the um, Earshot Jazz Festival um, and met a young woman who is currently an intern at the Earshot Jazz Festival from Mongolia. Oh. And she is about to found... Mongolia's first jazz festival. This is somebody that you're going to have to really to meet. Yeah, <laughs> super interesting. She said something to me about Mongolian singing because I was, of mm-hmm. course, got really excited when I um, when I heard that she's a jazz singer from Mongolia. Oh yeah. And uh, she said, uh, "There's one." She said, "Anybody can learn to throat sing," but she said, "There is one kind of Mongolian singing that only Mongolians can do." So it's something to yeah she said yeah. that you have to be born mongolian <laughs> uh, yeah i c- couldn't say but i do know that even just saying mongolian invites uh, a lot of further examination of subgroups yeah mm. like for example tuvans are ethnically mongolian mm. 
and to um, to an uneducated eye, they would it would be very difficult to distinguish uh, the Tuvans and the Mongolians. And then another neighboring culture is the Buryats in Russia, and they uh, inhabit a pretty large area. And, but they all consider themselves culturally distinct while mm. sharing a lot of those same characteristics. Mm-hmm. For example, throat singing is common to them all, and a horse culture, mm. and um, you know, nomadic past- pastoral sort of uh, existence. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'd certainly love to go to Mongolia. I kind of thought I might this past year, but gotta hit another up, time. Got to hit up the, the jazz festival. The jazz festival there, exactly. Talk to well, them. yeah. In your Central Asian travels, you mentioned you haven't been through the areas I've been that very you're close to Mongolia. Okay, I have uh, I I have performed in Tuva. That, and, I thought so. Yeah, yeah, and that was uh, you know back in the '90s, a, a traveler friend of mine. I was living in Taiwan at the time, and he came over one night and he said, "Oh, you got to hear this stuff I found." <laughs> it was this Tuvan throat singing. It was the first time I'd I'd heard. Th- throat singing of that variety and uh, and there are of course two varieties as you guys know because you have a project that deals with Inuit music mm-hmm. <laughs> but those are the two two world cultures mm-hmm. that practice throat singing and they're and they're very distinct they're very different yeah uh, so can I can I ask yeah. you like how did you end up traveling like what was what were the circumstances, what were the circumstances yeah. and how did you make the decision to head out and yeah, uh, there's some stories worth telling here. Um, this is to China to begin with. Oh, to right? China? Well, I mean, talking, like, I'm talking about start? the evolution of your travels in Asia, I guess, in Central oh, okay. Asia. Yeah. Uh, my travels in Asia owe entirely to my wife, Anne Joyner, who uh, was a, an East Asian Studies major at University of Washington. Oh, okay. And uh, with a specialty in Chinese and... Uh, when I first met and fell in love with her, she warned me that she was on the prowl for a job in China and that okay. she was going to accept it when it came through. And uh, she had to follow through because it was, you know, a life stream sort of thing. And this was back in 1988. And it all sounded very distant to me, but then soon enough the job came through. And she said, well, I'm going to China for a year. <laughs> and uh, Coming? But we, I don't think we had deepened our relationship enough that we felt we could withstand the year-long hiatus. Then about three months into that, she wrote me and said, I'm having such a great time over here, I decided to re-up for another year. And I thought, oh boy, this is my dear John letter or something. Right. But, but in the next paragraph, she said, but... I talked to the university, and I think I could swing you a job over here. Oh, great. And so it was the last thing on my mind, picking up and moving to China. I had never had any particular interest in China up to that point, although in general I'm interested in every place. Um, So I went over there uh, thinking that I would go for a year and having zero expectation of performing music in public, you know, I went over there with, uh, you know, fairly stereotypical visions of an authoritarian, repressed country where people didn't do that sort of thing. But uh, I was happily proven wrong, and I came back over four and a half years later, uh, and I, after having been drawn into this preposterous series of 
musical adventures that were enough to fill a book. So yeah, I did actually write. I wrote the book. It's called Live at the Forbidden City: Musical Encounters in China yeah. and Taiwan, Blue Ear Books, and uh, it's it's more than just a vanity memoir because I had. The privilege to just land in China at the right place in the right time, um, when the culture at large had one foot in its past and one foot in an uncertain future, mm-hmm. and uh, they were opening to the world. And I was. We're talking finding, what? What year are we talking? Eighty nine was when I was over there, which just happened to be the same year as the Tiananmen explosion, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, which was something that I couldn't ignore in my book because uh, the world at large still is lar- largely ignorant of the fact that there was a second Tiananmen in Chengdu. Uh, it was uh, three days of pitched battles that we witnessed. We witnessed casualties. Um, to today, some estimate that more people were killed in Chengdu mm-hmm. in the turbulence than in Beijing. So. Uh, it was an interesting time to be in China. And Chengdu, by the way, is where you were. That's where I yeah. was in Chengdu in Sichuan province, yeah. about a thousand miles inland. And uh, but basically, I went over with scant expectation of playing music, but I did bring a guitar to stay in practice. And then, uh, I guess the rumor went around that there was an American guitarist on <laughs> campus. And uh, one day, I found uh, a knock at the door, and I found this delegation of earnest-looking young students, and they said, are you the American guitarist? <laughs> and I was like, well, then they said, yes, we want to hear you play. And it was like, well, yeah, we could probably make something happen. But then I realized they meant, like, now. <laughs> and I said, With the well, door I, still open? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I said, well, I have a guitar, but I, I, I didn't bring an amp. I couldn't bring an amp or anything. And they said... We have one for you. It's already set up. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they marched me over to this frozen classroom, and uh-huh. I very nervously played. I wasn't accustomed to playing solo um, at all anyway, but I gave them a little audition, and I apparently passed, and that was the beginning of this uh, crazy roller coaster where, in short order, I found myself playing in cultural palaces and <sighs> factories and... Uh-huh. Um, before long it reached a point where I was introduced to a fellow who was arguably the first uh, major rock and roll personage in China named Zhang Xing he was passing through Chengdu uh, someone who was a, an acquaintance of mine and a friend of one of his musicians uh, said you have to come down and play for these guys it was another one of those situations. So he dragged me down to this hotel. I played a little guitar for them. And then I was uh, stupefied to be invited into their band to play at these sports arenas wow. uh, in like two days' wow. time. Wow. Playing a whole set of these Mandarin pop songs that you know were completely unfamiliar to me. So uh, I, I'm just... I protested. I said, part of me was thinking... <clears throat> This isn't me. This isn't the, this is not my kind of music, you know. But the other part was like, no to that. It's like, man, this is gonna make for some great yarns to spin over. Here you are, right over now. Over beers yeah. back in the states. So I said, uh, 
I agreed to it um, on the condition that we had ample time to rehearse. So I got together with the guys in the band in some hotel ballroom, and uh, they were way more interested in learning my stuff than in hmm. showing me theirs. They were like, oh, don't worry about it. It's a piece of cake. But the upshot <laughs> of it was that like a couple days later, I found myself on stage in this sports arena, uh, blindly improvising my way through all of these Mandarin pop songs. You were playing I was like say a lead a, or something? Yeah. Yeah. It must have been an improvisation exercise on some level. If it's two days you're talking uh, yeah, about. Right? I, I was just extemporizing in the middle of these tunes and trying to follow the changes as best I could. And then they gave me a little solo showcase slot, too, huh? where I played one of my tunes with the band while the MC bellowed over the microphone through the whole thing. <laughs> but uh, then they took me on the road with them to the next city, I ended up playing about five or six shows with these guys. And that's what opened my eyes to the possibility of perhaps returning to China, uh, but on my own terms with uh, musicians that I selected mm -hmm. who spoke my own musical language. And that eventually led to three of the earliest uh, unofficial concert tours of China by progressive Western bands. Mm -hmm unofficial in that we flew under the radar for the most part we did do some government sponsored shows but mostly under the radar stuff and this was the first experience of that kind of music for these audiences so um I felt what was this group what was the group like what was the what were you playing well i've done i did three of these tours so um at first i i had moved on to taiwan from china after the terms of our employment uh, came to an end, uh, mostly to recover our losses. Yeah. And there I ended up putting a band together made up of expatriates, um, okay. mostly Americans, Germans. And uh, what happened was someone that I knew in China introduced my music to uh, the most important Chinese rock musician, Cui Jian. And uh, he liked what he heard, and he encouraged me to come to Beijing. And I deemed my Taiwan-based band to, uh, up to it. So we made the trip over, and we ended up performing with him and launching a tour off of that. Later, uh, the same year, I engineered a situation where I brought a bunch of Seattle musicians over to perform in this festival the Sichuan China International TV Festival in a, a giant arena and it was broadcast live to an audience that's estimated in the hundreds of millions including wow. in the adjacent countries like Pakistan wow. and stuff like that and uh, yeah I'm, I'm sure I mean, you, you probably know some of the guys that I brought over you have a lot of different styles so I was just kind of curious what what did we do what were you playing yeah like? which, what was the music uh, I tend to play exclusively instrumental music, right. but uh, we had some, basically, part of the deal was that the guys that I recruited for the band were um, free to contribute their own material. Okay. And so there were some vocal pieces, but I I'd characterize it as a kind of progressive rock. Mm -hmm. uh, were any of the folks that you brought over, if we're thinking of the second tour now, where you source people from Seattle, mm -hmm. were any of those folks tied to any of the recordings we see on your site or that we might be talking about later? Uh, two of them. Uh, I, I've got 
drawn into this kind of curious project uh, just before leaving for China in, in 1989. Uh, a local director in Seattle made a feature film that was kind of a campy retelling of the Orpheus myth uh, with Orpheus as a skate punk mm -hmm. guitarist. And I got cast as his alter ego on, on the soundtrack. Um, but that brought me together with the composer for that day, who was Roland Barker, and the drummer, Bill Rieflin. And they had previously been in the Blackouts, which was an early influential Seattle band from the 70s. And uh, I enjoyed working with them so well. Amy Denio was also part of the project. And we're that, talking about Shredder Orpheus. Exactly. Just since you haven't. <laughs> and uh, I, I uh, s recruited them wholesale for this okay. tour. Uh, in the event, Amy couldn't make it. Hmm. And, so, and others also filled in. But uh, uh, I've, and I've worked with Bill in particular in three different bands over the years, um, including the next band I brought to China, which was five years later. And that was a group called Land. It was led by Jeff Greinke, and uh, the, it's a kind of rotating membership, but mm -hmm. uh, what a contrast. The third tour, the land tour, uh, compared to the two earlier tours five years earlier, because uh, those two early tours were certainly, you could class them as hardship tours, mm -hmm. uh, because the facilities were really substandard. Uh, it was hardship travel. And by five years later, uh, the infrastructure had improved to the point where, you know, an amp really was an amp, mm. <laughs> not a PA system. And uh, the, yeah, the venues and the travel arrangements were, were much smoother five years later. Now, is this like a situation where you, you head over, you're expecting a backline? At where where the instruments are at each club and everything, mm -hmm. so it's like a new adventure every time you're there. But you pretty much have to facilitate just getting over there with yourselves and your maybe your instruments or your drumsticks or whatever. Yeah, there was touch no touch and go kit. at every gig. Okay. Uh, in okay. terms of uh, equipment, and there's a, a running theme through my book about amps. Uh, <laughs> so at that time um there were chinese made guitar amps and uh, mostly they were pretty abominable mm. and uh, for whatever reason the only foreign made amp that you ever encountered was a pv but when you did find one it was like thank god but uh this this is the funny part was that in chinese there was only one word for amplifier and it applied also to PA system, mm -hmm. yin shang. And so I learned to ask for a yin shang and try to make certain that I was going to have one. And there were numerous gigs where I showed up and there was no guitar amp. There was just a PA system, like a <laughs> just arena size, plug, right plug into, into an arena size PA system. <laughs> wow. So there was that. And then I, I remember uh, here's another characteristic uh, situation was when. Uh, I needed a new guitar cable. And so I knew a place that sold electric guitars and amps. And I went down there and I said that I needed a cable. And the guy basically laughed in my face and he said, well, I was going to have to make one from scratch. Mm. And uh, they couldn't sell cables because 
they were under the jurisdiction of some particular government ministry, hmm. and cables were under the jurisdiction of a different government ministry. So I had to bicycle miles and miles wow. across town to the place that had... In fact, there was one place that made the cable and another place that made the plugs. Mm. So I had to get some guy to borrow a solder, soldering gun to, mm-hmm. to make my own cables, <laughs> right? So just an example of yeah. the logistical yeah. challenges. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about... you know, cause I, About two years ago, I was, I was there visiting some theater, some kind of experimental theater, mm-hmm. theaters in Beijing and Shanghai. And what they have to deal with in terms of censorship is really quite amazing. I mean, they have one show, they know the censor. They have one show they do when the censor's there. They have another show they do when the censor's not mm-hmm. there. And just, I'm just curious, like, is music, even if there's no words, is there an element of, What's okay to play and what isn't okay to play? Uh, I love that question. Uh, coincidentally, uh, a couple of years ago, I was asked to contribute to this volume, the Routledge History of Social Protest in Popular Music, and somebody steered him to me, and I contributed the uh, the chapter on China. Hmm. And uh, I was interested in asking the same question. Uh, Essentially, I thought that, uh, and, and certainly based on the other contents of this, this collection of essays, that when people hear the term protest music, they automatically are thinking in terms of vocal music mm-hmm. because of the message, right? Right. And so it raised the very interesting question, I thought, can instrumental music minus a verbal message also uh, count as protest music? And so I examined that, and I felt that uh, absolutely it can. Um, in, in some cases, uh, just simply through an act of aggressive volume or something <laughs> mm-hmm. like that, or, or just being, you know, extremely abrasive. But uh, another thing I thought of was uh, that same, the father of Chinese rock and roll, Cui Jian, who was a very controversial figure, <clears throat> Um, he once got in trouble for making an irreverent version of this kind of cultural revolution era uh, patriotic anthem. And he never changed a word, not a single word, but it was couched in this rock and roll music. And it infuriated this high military official to the extent that he was banned from performing for a year. Hmm. And so... The simple fact of couching this patriotic material in foreign musical clothing mm-hmm. was enough to set this guy off, right? Yeah, sure. When when I was in in Hong Kong, I saw a film, an experimental film. This um, theater director Danny Young made, and it was entirely footage from the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. He didn't add anything to it, but the way that he put it together. It made it very controversial, and he got in a lot of trouble for the oh, way yeah. he edited it. But it's just fascinating that you can take something, and you're you're really only changing its context in a certain exactly. way, or, or the editing, or what you choose to put the lens on. Yeah, exactly. And then suddenly the 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 ideas that are being shown 
are seen in such a totally different light that mm-hmm. people start thinking there's something dangerous about it. Oh, yeah. I'd be curious to see that. Yeah. Um, you can amplify the negativity that maybe gets, you know, brainwashed over. And I, I remember hearing, uh, I want to say it was a State of the Union during Bush too, that got re-edited or just kind of like colored by all these different sound artists. And that. one person was just playing with volume. And that was it. Just mm-hmm. kind of like the equivalent of like drawing an underline on different right. words. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. That's all there is to it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I heard some of those. Those were great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it uh, Chinese, a certain small subculture of Chinese were embracing rock music, which was an embodiment of Western values, actually. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, that alone made it controversial. This was a time when China was just <coughs> cautiously opening itself to the outside world. So uh, you were kind of playing by fire simply by <coughs> adopting this foreign musical form. Mm-hmm. You know. <coughs> so, I, I actually uh, had I actually sorry. had a, a track that I I was curious. Yeah, to. I was gonna say we're about we're about at that time. Yeah, because and also. Um, it's kind of right on theme. Um, when I listen to to your um, the the views from Chichang, pro- Chichang, Chichang yeah. Precipice, um, which is kind of so beautiful. There's so much amazing stuff in there. I'm curious too about the singer that oh, okay. you were working with in yeah. there. Uh, uh, you're speaking of a piece called Aviariations yeah, exactly, on exactly. A Hundred Birds. Greet the Phoenix. Hmm. Serenade, Serenade the, Phoenix. the Phoenix. Right. And uh, it's a piece of traditional music that is uh, a s- showcase for a Swona soloist. And Swona is a double reed instrument, so it kind of in the same family as the oboe or a bassoon. But it's a pretty short scale and has kind of a, almost a flared trumpet bell. And they're extremely strident instruments. Mm-hmm. And their purpose, in fact, uh, traditionally has been to frighten away the spirits. <laughs> and that's why you would always hear uh, swona players or ensembles at weddings or uh, court it, ritual events, mm-hmm. funerals, that sort of a thing. Uh, but a cleansing thing. Yeah, exactly. I'm gonna drop the needle and. Uh, well, I was. I, play a little bit. I was I, thinking the the uh, bright shang track. Okay. Is that what you were about to play? No. Oh, oh, you were playing Good this. Call. I was gonna play that, but let's play. Yeah. We'll edit it okay. Back. I just want to play and a little. Then I'll, and I'll tell you about the singer whenever you want. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just from the top. Right? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Just maybe 30, 40 seconds. Okay.
Yeah, I, I, I just put, I wanted to play that for you because I, I, it was making me, I, there's a, uh, a piece by Bright Sheng, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I had taken lessons with him many, many years ago, yeah. and he had talked about uh, the importance of the unison. He was, his education was being a 12-year-old uh, composer of patriotic music in a camp, mm-hmm. in a work camp, mm-hmm. because he's the only kid in the whole camp that so he was a music director as 12 mm-hmm. but his job was to set it to european chords the chinese melodies that was the first thing that occurred to me when you played that excerpt and i am familiar with bright shung's work he's one of the you know vanguard of composers of sort of leading traditional chinese music into the modern world and dealing with the influence of other cultures mm-hmm. um it is true broadly speaking that uh the science of functional harmony is unique to Western European culture. And uh, virtually every other culture in the world uh, doesn't really practice harmony as a deliberate uh, as a deliberate science or methodology. And the Chinese are no exception, and you'll find that most of their tradi- almost all of their traditional music is homophonic, which means that you have uh, Whenever there's multiple players or singers, they're all actually playing or singing the same melody. Mm -hmm. And the variation comes from their singing in different registers and different octaves. And Um, and ornaments and textures. Exactly. And so uh, when this millennia-long tradition of Chinese traditional music sort of crashed up against the tradition of Western classical music. Uh, it really plunged a lot of people into confusion over there. They found the, the harmony very seductive. And uh, for a time there, uh, in the middle 20th century, there was kind of a fad for taking uh, familiar Chinese melodies and just kind of uh, draping them in, in kind of sappy and obvious harmonic orchestration uh, with kind of a worst of both worlds thing but uh, as things started loosening up post-cultural revolution uh, a generation of composers kind of came out of the shadows and they were referred to as the new tide or new wave and um, Bright Sheng would, would have been one of those folks Tan Dun Guo Wenjing some of them have gone on to be um, real eminences in the global musical world. Uh, but those were the first guys to find a way, I thought, to um, marry uh, the two traditions without vitiating either of them. Mm. And uh, some just really wonderful results. Um, I took that approach myself on some of these pieces and views from Chichang Precipice. Um, it was, it's kind of an obvious way of uh, of exploring that music, but because that's the tradition that I'm steeped in, and it's something I'm comfortable with, and I thought it was interesting to explore. The the record comes with a disclaimer that I'm not uh, I'm not necessarily handling this traditional material with kid gloves, right? That I'm injecting my own personality into it. Mm-hmm. So there was the one piece and uh, called A Hundred Birds mm-hmm. uh, Serenade the Phoenix. And it was a showcase for a Swona soloist. But 
the uh, mission of the Swanaw player was to imitate birdsong. And, uh, and it was, you hear a version of this, uh, it's a thrilling piece. It, it just really knock you right off your chair the way some of these soloists could imitate bird songs so uncannily huh. and uh, with such precision and speed. So I decided to take a whack at that piece and substituting for the swona, get somebody in there that could actually kind of approximate the bird song vocally. Hmm. And I knew this uh, woman who's, she's originally from Australia, lives in Seattle, Katarina DeRay. And she had played me some of her earlier work where she had done just that, basically. She had a, an act where she did kind of bird song. Hmm. And so uh, I turned her loose on this one. And uh, as with several of the pieces, we kind of respected the, the structure of the original piece initially and then went off from there. Mm -hmm. And so uh, did, it's pretty heavily edited in the middle. It starts sounding like musique concrète or electronic music or something. And I take snippets of her voice and snippets of my guitar using um, extended techniques and kind of making a collage out of it. But uh, in, in parts, it's kind of a laugh out loud piece. And I am particularly proud of that. It's, it's yeah, really... It'll make you sit up in your chair. Yeah, it, did, yeah. it did. Yeah. <laughs> and I intend to uh, work with Katerina again on this Giant Steps project oh. when we get to the uh, suite of Tibetan pieces because she's very heavily invested in Tibetan culture. She's travels over there... Uh, a couple of times a year, been very deeply involved with that culture. So she's the right, right person to involve. I don't know if we actually said like when we can expect to see Giant Steps or whatever it ends up being called. It's a spring to summer of next year. Excellent. Okay, mm -hmm. and that's another Moon June it project. Is. It now, is. How did you How did you first come into contact with Moon June Records? Because I think there's. Yeah, well, Moon June Records is a small label that uh, had a reputation for quality um, in this sort of a, a sphere that embraces kind of cutting-edge modern progressive rock and uh, jazz rock fusion, and, uh, and from all over the world. And uh, basically what happened was very serendipitous. I was aware of the label. They put out a soft machine record, an archival live release by um, a, a kind of under-recorded lineup of that group. And so I ordered it from the label, and I got a message from the... It's a one-man operation, Leonardo Pavkovich. I got a message from him saying, uh, sorry, the record is uh, on... Uh, back order right now so it's going to be another week or so before I can send it out and I said oh yeah no problem but I appreciated that he contacted me directly to let me know and I said yeah I appreciate the direct contact and you know while I've got your ear uh, allow me to congratulate you on your you know uh, uh, exceptional record label and this ended up being a case where putting your website and your signature paid off because he just kind of thought, who is this guy? <laughs> something's, not, he, something's not right. Right. <laughs> Clicked through to the website, and the first thing he noticed was the, the China experiences and that I had written this book. And 
he's an amazing world traveler and he had been in China years before I had. And so he expressed interest in that and I said, I'll be happy to send you a copy if you like. And I did. And note that I'm not selling myself, right? I, I, I realize I'm talking to a guy that runs this exemplary record label, but I was not going to solicit him. Mm. And ended up that he re read the book and loved it. And then the next question was, well, what about your music? And I said, well, I've got a band that's just recorded its first record, and I'm trying to figure out what to do with it. He said, I'd like to hear it. I sent it to him, and he said, why don't you put it out on Moon June? And that's how that started. Great. So I'm six or seven records into that relationship now. Um, been associated with the label for close to 10 years, and it was a life-changing experience for me. It was a very serendipitous how we met. Um, I really didn't have much of an international profile until that happened. Um, and, you know, it's run on a shoestring, but is an incredible roster of artists. Mm. And uh, they just this week uh, got voted uh, third in the downbeat uh, readers poll for label of the year. Oh, excellent. Yeah, somebody was saying how embarrassing to place above none such and verve and impulse. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, readers' polls are readers' polls. But so that's how that all started. But Grand basically, fine, I have yeah. carte blanche to release these crazy projects and uh, full support. That's beautiful. That so, is beautiful. Yeah. Congratulations on that. Mm-hmm. Nice. So I'm going in in about a week to start recording the next piece in the Giant Steps, and this is the one uh, that deals with Tuvan music, and. Uh, I wanted to go back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier. I, you had asked me how I ended up in Central Asia. Never really got t to the answer, but um, because I'm a Moon June artist uh, and he sends out uh, his, his artists' releases to a large number of people all over the world who are writers and impresarios, uh, this fellow in Russia got a hold of the first Moraine record and he really loved it. And he got a hold of me, and he started talking right away about, we got to get you guys over to Russia. Uh, the problem was getting a five-piece band to Russia. If one of those deals that is pretty common. If you can get yourself there, then right. everything's taken care of. Right. But uh, that, that was a, kind of a step too far for us at that time. But as the years wore on, this fellow in Russia, Yuri Linogradsky, who had been a concert promoter, he came up with this extremely audacious idea of taking a busload of mostly avant-garde musicians across the country and playing in cities large and small. Uh, he did it three years running and pushed it farther every year. And uh, the last time they did it, uh, it, it was certainly unprecedented to do this. Uh, it was a bus tour from, started in Moscow and ended up in Vladivostok as covering some very rough terrain. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, it's twice the width of the USA, basically. Mm -hmm. wow. So I was invited to participate and took part in two of those tours. And, you know, because I don't have unlimited time, I went for two weeks stints two years in a row. But the second year when I discovered that they were playing at this festival in Tuva, I made sure to time my participation around that because, yeah. again, you know, thinking back to the 1990s when I first heard Tuvan music, the idea of ever going there was just preposterous, right? 
so we played at this uh, festival marking this Tibetan Buddhist religious holiday, and uh, it was a surreal experience. And my band Moraine ended up playing for thousands of people at two o'clock in the morning in a wrestling arena, and uh, we actually didn't have anything thrown at us. It was we seemed to go down pretty well, but uh, I should tell this story because. If, if any of your listeners uh, know anything about Tuvan music, they may be aware of the, the movie Genghis Blues mm-hmm. that came out maybe 15 years yeah. ago or something. So it was the story of, of, of this blind American blues musician who was a ham re- radio enthusiast, and he heard this unworldly music one night in the middle of the night while he was traveling around the dial, and it just grabbed his imagination and he eventually figured out it was Tuvan throat singing. So he educated himself about Tuvan throat singing and taught himself how to do it. And then he connected with some people who had some connections over there. And the upshot was that he traveled over there and participated in this throat singing competition and a film crew followed him. And it was this heartwarming movie where he, you know, interacted with these people and I don't remember if he won, but he certainly placed in this competition. I right? remember there being tears involved. Yeah. Yeah, it was a wonderful film. Yeah. So here, you know, 15 years later, I'm over there and have an opportunity, just just having the opportunity to perform was, was enough. But I was informed when we got there that I, um, I was going to be accorded the honor of um, being invited onto this jury that was going to audition all of these hopefuls who uh, were uh, they, they were hoping to be chosen to perform on the main festival stage on the weekend. And uh, so I think I was chosen because, well, I was one of the senior guys on the bus, but I was probably the only guy on this busload of musicians from all over Europe and that uh, actually knew a little bit about tube and throat singing. So wait, so you were a Tuvan throat singing judge? These are... it, more than, <laughs> more than that. So yeah, I uh, alongside a handful of Russians and Tuvans, including the guy who ran the Tuvan National Brass Band and Music Academy. Uh, I had no idea that it was going to eat up about two and a half days of my life, but we ended up auditioning. Uh, I think of 65 different acts uh, and deliberating about them and p- passing some of them on to the main stage. And and so I thought I knew something about Tuvan throat singing going into it, but I certainly do now because there was any number of Tuvan throat singers. There were soloists, male and female. There were ensembles, adults, youths. Uh, there were foreign guys, like a guy that came from Japan who had taught himself throat singing. And there was a lot more than that. There was Siberian metal bands. There was a, a little Tuvan girl who was seven or eight years old. Who's, her shtick was uh, doing an impersonation of Tina Turner. And, In throat singing? And, and no. Oh, okay. But she'd get up there and belt out... Uh, 
you simply the best. And it was she was great. You know, you couldn't believe what was coming out of this little girl. Wow. I nicknamed her Tina Tuva. <laughs> and, and of course, we passed her on to the main stage. Yeah. And two days later, I was a little shocked when I heard her introduced over the PA speakers as Tina Tuva. So <laughs> Beautiful. My, my meme caught. Right. But anyway, so there we were, uh, just sort of evaluating all of these wow. guys. And after a while, you started to get a sense for who the really exceptional ones were right. and the ones that were kind of, you know, beginners. And so it was a marvelous experience, although it was exhausting. And on the very last day before we left, I saw our Tuvan host making his way to our camp again. And I thought, oh, jeez. Yeah, I thought this was over. But it was to bestow a gift on me of appreciation. He gave me the bronzed knee bone of a wolf, Whoa. which was kind of a potent little talisman in their culture. T- turns out that part of the world has probably the greatest concentration of wolves, and it's really central to their culture. Bronzed so knee-bone. I have the thing at home, and sometimes I think that that thing is like reeling me back in over yeah. there. So following that, uh, Yuri, who put together these tours, said he knew I was interested in that music and had some designs on making uh, variations on it. And so he said, you know, Albert uh, Kuvazin, who's the, he was one of the founders of the first prominent, internationally prominent um, group of Tuvan throat singers, Hun Hurtu. And then he left that group to form the first Tuvan rock band. They're called Yatka. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're actually pretty well known. They've done, you know, world tours. And he said, you know, I'll bet Elbert would be interested in collaborating with you because, uh, you know, he's always up for a challenge and uh, he's interested in trying new things out. So he put us in touch and uh, I was very gratified when I found that Albert, yes, was actually up for it. And so we're going to do this piece. And uh, at first I was going to adopt the same approach I did with the other pieces, which is select material that spoke to me and come up with some kind of an arrangement of it. And I was going to do the same with the Tuvan music. But uh, interestingly, I found myself writing a a piece of my own that was in a kind of quasi-Tuvan mode. And then at the same time, I discovered partly by design and partly by accident how to approximate a deep Truven throat singer on electric guitar. And uh, if I do say so myself, the results are uncanny. It will, it will fool you. You will believe that you're hearing a, a human voice. All right. And uh, I explain the tech technicalities about that another time but (laughs) so I came up with this piece and I found that I was really happy with it and I was kind of workshopping it with my band Moraine and we played it at a concert and I got a good recording of it with a local throat singer Stephen Fondrick who does like harmonic singing I guess Mm -hmm. is how he would probably describe his approach and so I sent it to Albert the other day with some trepidation because when you're kind of messing around with people's music or writing something that is an approximation mm-hmm. of it, you really want approval, right? So I was uh, very delighted when he got back to me and he said, 
really does sound like Tuvan music. <laughs> so cool. he's still up for it. Nice. So right. we have this problem of distance, yeah. but so he's going to you know have to record his piece separately. But uh, that's what we're uh, getting to work on next week. That's exciting. So excellent. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited to yeah. hear this record. And that's probably enough about giant steps. But we're actually rounding out an hour. And so uh, I have to ask you for one more story, though, before we wrap up. And that's, what was the first record that you bought with your own money? Oh, geez. Um, Actually, I do remember what it was. It was Last Train to Clarksville by the Monkees. Oh, really? That was a big one in my house. Was it? Yeah. 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 Well, I'll I'll still defend the Monkees to this day. But I like, you know, every time I tell that story, I have to add that... uh, that was on one of their early records, and they weren't actually playing the instruments on, <laughs> on until later records. Well, the Monkees is whoever was playing it, right? Yeah, it was uh, actually the Wrecking Crew playing most of those tunes. It could have been Glenn Campbell on guitar. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes like a Brill Building writer or yeah. somebody with a, uh, some writing caliber. Carol King wrote uh, uh, Pleasant Valley Sunday. Mm-hmm. Neil Diamond wrote I'm a Believer. Mm-hmm. As but, a five-year-old, I think I was really confused between the Beatles and the, the Monkees. I actually took me a long time to sort out that that was two different groups. <laughs> yeah, That's same. Interesting. <clears throat> Excuse me. But so I, you know, I kind of fi- fixated on Mike Nesmith. He was my kind of role model as a guitarist. Now, as it turns out, he's an excellent guitar player, but it wasn't even him playing. <laughs> oh, right. So so much for role models. <laughs> But yeah, that was that was the start of it for me. All right, mm-hmm. and you have ventured far and wide from there. Yeah, maybe it's time to do some monkeys. <laughs> I'd well, like Dennis, to hear your arrangements of them for eight I, guitars. Yeah, yeah, let's get going Not on right. that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Dennis. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Oh, thanks for letting me uh, just run off at the mouth no, but, uh, we rarely get past the first question yeah which oh, is, is that right what yeah. are you up to that's lately? what this is all about yeah okay it's well all... yeah well, so well perfect. no it's it's um it's my pleasure and privilege i you know you guys have got a good thing going here and uh so i'm um, delighted to be working with you ben and in, in a new group and uh Maybe your listeners will get a chance to hear some of that one of these uh, one, of these one of these days. days. We're just yeah. about ready to play live. So uh, yeah, no, just delighted to jaw with you guys and uh, wish you the best in this venture. And I'll give you a, a progress report and update someday. Right on. Yeah. yeah, we're gonna have to come back and do the primer, the primer, primer. I never know how to pronounce that. Yeah, I wonder about that uh, myself. Next time, but uh, Dennis Ray, thanks so much. Until next time. Thank you, guys. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any ideas for us on future guests or any feedback, drop us a line. You can get in touch with us on the contact page of our website, articulationspodcast.com. There, you'll find show notes for each episode and your way to our Facebook page. Ben is on Twitter at ListenFaster. Find the Articulations podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to it and you won't miss a thing. We'll see you soon.